Jesus Christ, the great apostle and high priest of our faith. And we've seen many wonderful things about him. He is a priest out to the order of Melchizedek, who reigns at God's right hand forever, whoever lives to make intercession for us, and who saves those who come to him to the uttermost, those who have taken refuge in God, which is what Psalm 31 talks about, taking refuge in God. He saves them to the uttermost. Those who trust in him are given a new heart that is devoted to God and his ways, and they have complete forgiveness of their sins. The promises of the new covenant are brought to rich fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen all of that much more than that, as we've looked at, at the one who is the Lamb of God. Hebrews has been focused on the glory of Christ as our faithful Savior for the first ten and a half chapters. But now, at 10.19, it focuses on how we ought to trust in such a great Savior. Not that that has been absent before. We certainly talked about us trusting in Him and the need to do that. But now the whole focus is from who He is and His glory as our Savior and His perfections, His superiority to all the shadows of the Old Testament, now shifting to what is the people who trust in Him, what does that trust look like? How, what is it supposed to be in us? That, that's what we're getting at. The Holy Spirit gave these Hebrew people this letter because they were struggling with going back to Jerusalem. And so it was uh, Spirit's intention to show them that uh, Christ was far better than the shadows of old. To, make, to see that Christ was, was better manifested in His coming and fulfillment on the cross than manifested in the shadows of the Old Testament. Christ was manifested there, but now there's a much more complete and full manifestation that cannot be put aside. We learn from this, however, that what, what has been true in the church until this day that trusting in Him is not easy. The Hebrews were having a hard time when this letter was written to them. They were having lots of pressure to go back to Judaism. We live in a world that hates our Lord and opposes Him, and we ourselves have our flesh that continues to war against the Spirit. Satan, who walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We're in a battle And it's a battle that has real casualties. We know of people that started out with Christ, that professed faith, and are now dead in their trespasses and sins. They professed faith. They obviously didn't have real faith. But they did not continue in the grace of God. They found the battle too great, and they departed from the Lord. They were overcome by temptations and snares and deceptions and all the rest. It is a real battle And it has eternal consequences. Those who are truly saved can never lose their salvation. The ones who do depart and who who show that they never truly trusted in the Lord. Their rejection of him in the heat of the battle exposes their former hypocrisy and insincerity. But those who truly believe are by no means exempted from the fray. The reason we continue is not because God takes the battle away from us or us away from the battle. We need constant encouragement to keep on going. The truth is that we could not and would not keep on going without that encouragement. 
God provides that encouragement to those who are his. And one of the places where he does that is in what we're looking at in Hebrews and what we have here in Psalm 31. He provides us encouragement so that we keep he keeps us in the way. It's not by taking us out of the fray, but by strengthening our faith in the midst of the fray. Now, the part of Hebrews that we've come to here, Hebrews 10, 19 to 12, 29, is an encouragement to continue trusting the Lord in the midst of the battle. So we'll be looking at this in the coming weeks. But today we're going to take up this song as our theme song, our song of focus as we go through this part of Hebrews. It's a song about trusting God in the battle. Psalm, Psalm 31. It's found, of course, Psalm 31 is found in the collection of the 150 songs that our Lord gave His people to sing. Songs that are found right in our Bibles, that are given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That means that they are songs without error of any kind. No error even in their emphasis. They don't overemphasize things or underemphasize things. No errors in their focus. No errors in their, the sentiments that are presented here and the contents, the, the material that's presented. They are songs that give us words for the holy desires that we ought to have in our hearts and that we ought to lift up to God. For the yearnings, for the longings, for the expressions of love and trust, expressions of frustration when things are not as they should be, that we ought to bring before God. Expressions and sentiments that belonged to Christ, who is our head now that He has taken our flesh. He also has these sentiments and expressions that we are to embrace as our own. He has them. We're to come up to them as we grow. We come with them in in various shades and degrees. They need to become fully the expression of our own faith in our own heart. This song is about his faith and our faith when it is hard to believe. When it's hard to when, when believing causes difficulties, like our Lord Jesus, there are times when it seems that our labor for God has been in vain. You can read where the Lord talks about that, for example, in Psalm 50, I mean, Isaiah 50. Like Jesus, there are times when we are weary and exhausted and we feel like we cannot go on. Like Jesus, there are times when the world crushes us and oppresses us And we're bowed down under that pressure. Like Jesus, there are times when we're ridiculed and slandered. And yet when we must go on in our faith. Like him, there are times when all of our friends forsake us. And no one stands with us to pray with us or to encourage us. And times when we're filled with discouragement because the the ones who are saved that we know have turned away from God in the heat of the battle, those that were fighting beside us. Like Jesus, there are times when our iniquities lie heavy upon us as if they would sink us into hell forever. Jesus experienced that more than any of us as he bore our iniquities on the cross, not for his own sins, but as the head of his people for our sins. He knows more than any of us what it is to have sin sink you into the pit. Like him, there are times when we cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we cannot find him and his comfort in the heat of the battle. 
Like him, there are times of agonizing prayer when we plead that if it would be possible that the cup of affliction that we're bearing might pass from us. And we confess that we're overwhelmed and our faith must go on. He meant it when he said that we would be tested and that in following him, we must go through much tribulation in this world. That's one of the first things that the apostles told new disciples. They showed them the sufferings and the tribulation that they must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. So often today, that message has been completely turned upside down. Come to Christ and all will go well for you in this world. That is not the promise of our Savior. That is not the experience of our Savior. That is not the experience of His people. I will now read this entire psalm to you. Then I'll break it down in an effort to give you a better sense of it. And with God's help, you will gain a better sense of it to the enrichment of your faith and trust in our gracious God. Remember that God has commanded that ministers expound the word to the congregation as we do each week. And in his providence, he has appointed that you are here to hear this sermon today. I encourage you to always pray accordingly for God to bless you and his people as we do this and as churches around the world do this. We do this because He has commanded it, and we look to Him to bless us. We don't look to our own strength. We look to the working of God in His Spirit. He gets the glory, because as we saw, He uses earthen vessels to do His work. Our eyes, then, must be on Him. So here is Psalm 31. This is God's holy and infallible word to us. It is his word about the trust that our Lord Jesus has to his heavenly father in the midst of the fray. He still has it as he goes through the battle with his people that are still upon the earth until his church is gathered to glory. He says to his enemies, why are you persecuting me? Because he goes through the battle with us. And this is his faith as our mediator as well as our faith. He showed that he had this faith when he was here and he leads us in this faith now in the midst of the battle so long as we are here. Psalm 31. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place, a free place. Verse 9, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all of my enemies, but especially among my neighbors 
and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I, I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. And in verse 19, continuing on. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. O love the Lord, all you his saints. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Amen. May God bless the hearing of his holy word, the word that we have heard. And now as it is expounded to us, thanks be to God for this song of faith that he has given us to sing, to express those desires that we ought to bring before him as we are engaged in the battle of this world for our soul. May he strengthen our faith as the sense of this psalm is is now proclaimed to you as we consider these things, if God is so pleased. In verses 1 through 8, we see what we might call initial faith. This is the foundation of our relationship with God. If you don't have this initial faith, you have no relationship with God that is lasting. Here we sing with our Lord Jesus of how we have put our trust in God alone. That's what believers do. That's what faith is. We have, as it were, put all of our eggs in one basket. Do you, do you know that expression? That's used, for example, if uh, someone was to, had, a, had a big fortune that they wanted to invest. And so they decide to invest all of it in one company. That's usually not advisable, but if they did that, they said, I'm, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. That's, that's the, the idea of it. Instead of putting some of the wealth in one place and some of it in another and diversifying, it all goes in one basket. This is what we do when we come to the Lord for salvation with true faith. We don't have a backup plan. We don't have other options that we can fall back on if something goes wrong with this one. We put everything, you see, when we come to understand, we realize that there are no other plans. There are no other backups. When we truly understand the way of salvation, when we truly understand the gospel, we put everything on the plan that God has revealed of saving sinners by his son crucified on the cross and raised again and his Holy Spirit working in the heart of those who call upon his name. 
true faith causes us to put all of our eggs in that basket. As our mediator, Jesus also put all of his trust in this plan. He went all the way to the cross because he believed that God would redeem his people in that way and that God would deliver him. He did it for the joy that was set down before him for the reward. All his eggs in one basket and those who have true faith do the same. We trust in him alone for salvation, as we say in our membership vows, as he is revealed in the gospel. Make sure then that you're clear as we talk about these things of what the battle is about. It is about this. It is a battle for your soul, for what you are trusting in. We have come to God by Christ to be saved and to be his forever. And we trust in the Lord to keep us. Satan, the world, and our flesh are at work to take back your soul. They do not want us to belong to God by faith. The battle you face every day is a battle for your soul. Efforts are expended in all sorts of diverse ways to turn you away from the Lord, to turn you against Him, to distract you away from Him with other things. There's all sorts of methods that are employed. Jesus talks about them, for example, in the parable of the sower. There's persecution on the one hand that would discourage and drive you away from serving God because of fear and such things. And then there's the the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches that entice you and try to draw you away from looking to God. Let's walk through the verses in this first section, verses one through eight at this time. First of all, in 31, one and two, we express the foundation of our faith in the Lord. In you, O Lord, I put my trust This may be translated, in you, O Lord, I have put my trust. Or I have taken refuge in you. The word trust there has an idea of a refuge, something you go to for safety and protection. The sense is, Lord, I am relying on you to deliver me. I have put my trust in you to save me. Do not fail me is the the idea here. That's what it means when it says, let me never be ashamed. We don't always speak in that kind of terminology, but don't let me be ashamed that I made the wrong decision, that I put my trust in the wrong thing. Like the guy, the investor I talked about before, if that company failed, he would be ashamed. He would be disappointed that he made the wrong decision. He put it all in the wrong place. Don't let me be disappointed that I put my eggs in this one basket. Don't ever let it be that I should regret that I have done this. Come through for me, Lord, with your promises. Notice the very strong cry for deliverance here. There's a sense of desperation. Deliver me in your righteousness. God has promised to do it, so he would be unrighteous if he didn't do it. So we're we're appealing to him. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Listen to me, Lord. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge. A place of safety that I can go to. A fortress of defense to save me. Lord, I am in need of refuge. I am in need of deliverance. Every day the battle rages. I am incompetent. I am ruined. I am unable to deliver myself. I am broken by sin as all in the world are. I am looking to you first to deliver me 
and then to keep me. We are sinners and we must be delivered from our own way, from our sin and our guilt. And then we must be preserved in God's way. So this is especially talking about the preservation, isn't it? The refuge. This is essential. And this is the essence of our faith in God. He has revealed his way in Christ. We must trust in him in that way to save us. Christ as our mediator has a dual role. He is both a fellow believer with us, who also coming here became man and then looked to God for salvation, leading all of us to look to God for salvation that he himself was appointed, Christ himself was appointed to accomplish. He is also the object of our faith. So we trust in Christ and in the Father giving Christ, but we, Jesus also, we follow him as the one who has faith. He trusted the Father to deliver him when he came to bear our sins, and the Father did. He raised him from the dead and established him to rule at his right hand until all of his enemies are made his footstool, and until he has gathered all of his people into his kingdom and brought them to glory, destroying all of his and our enemies. In 31, 3 through 5, the plea for God to keep us appeals to God's own reputation. We say, for you are my rock and and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, Lord, lead and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. Note those words, for your name's sake. What does that mean? The idea here is that God's reputation is on the line. We have come to him as our rock and fortress who has promised to save us. So what kind of rock and fortress will he be? Will he be a rock and fortress that is sufficient for us? We have come to him for deliverance. How well will he lead us and guide us when we have pressures, temptations that are brought to us? Things that are said that God's way is not true or distortions of things, the truth, trying to entice us and lead us away. Will he be able to keep us on track in the midst of all the enemies who try to turn us away from God intellectually? All the vain philosophies, objections, arguments, accusations, threats, and ploys. How well will he be able to pull us out of the net when we have been caught in the net of the enemy? when we have been delivered by our lusts over to the world. You see that there is strong confidence expressed. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. We recognize those words in verse 5. To your hand I commit my spirit. As our Savior's words, when he gave up his spirit or his soul, his life on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit, he said. Many others have spoken those words upon their death when the martyrs that have died have echoed those words. It is the ultimate expression of trust. But you see, it's not just for when we die. I am committing my spirit, my soul, into the care of the Lord. That's what you do when you come to be saved. You say, Lord, I can't look after my own soul. Nobody else can look after it. You take care of this. You're the only one. Who are you going to commit your soul to at death? Who's going to be able to deliver you and and keep you alive and and raise you up again? Only God. This is the very thing that we're called to do, to take our very lives, not wait till you die, but now, our eternal spirits and put them in God's hands. 
all that we are and all that we have. All the eggs in one basket again. The hands that made the world and the hands that preserved the world are the same hands that redeemed us. Our confidence is that He who redeemed us will keep us. And you see, we go on to say, You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Redemption has a twofold aspect in Scripture. One aspect is to give a ransom, to pay the penalty that had to be paid because of our sins, bearing the punishment that had to be paid. The other is to deliver from bondage or slavery. You set someone free. You come to rescue them with power. So the one is a payment of a price. The other is a rescue by power. And of course, in this case, it is the ransom to justice by the blood of Christ to atone for our sins. And it is deliverance from bondage to sin, to Satan, and to the world. Our confidence is that since God has redeemed us, we are forgiven and sin shall not have dominion over us. That's our confidence. God's power is at work in us to keep us. He has redeemed us. He will continue to preserve us in that redemption. In 31, 6-8, we confess that God has indeed set us free. He has turned us against the idols and their votaries. The words are, I have hated those who regard useless idols. Those who, who are busy about turning people to regard idols. To say, look at these idols. Look at what these idols can do for you. All the things, whether it's just pleasures or whether it's something to trust religiously or whatever it is. I hate those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. That is a marvelous deliverance that God has given us. God has set us free. We used to trust in worthless things. That's what the word idol means here. A worthless thing. But now we, have, now we trust in our God. We trusted in these things along with our comrades in the world. But now everything has been changed because the light of the glorious gospel of Christ has shone in our hearts. And now we see the truth and we have been set free. He has redeemed us and broken the alliance that we had with idols and those who serve them. This gives us a sure future. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope. I will be glad, verse 7 says, and rejoice in your mercy. See, there's a certainty there. For you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. You've brought me, you've delivered me from the enemy. My, I, my soul is now entrusted to you rather than spread out all over the world in everything else. My enemies employ every means to turn me back to those ways, away from you, to question your goodness, whether you are trustworthy, your wisdom and your power, to cause me to rebel against you, to turn away from you, and to turn to something else. But wonderful words. Look at what it says. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up to the hand of the enemy. God knows us in the battle. He sees you when you're conflicted and when the pressure is there pulling at you and you're, you're struggling in your walk with God. He has known you in the midst of that affliction, known you in order to keep you, to deliver you. We, we studied about that earlier in Hebrews, how Jesus Christ is a merciful and a compassionate and faithful high priest 
He understands the battle because he has been in the battle. At Gethsemane of all places, you, you have known me when my heart is wavering and drawn away from you. You have understood my temptations, Lord, and my pressures and have drawn near to me in the midst of the fray. And the enemy has not prevailed. What does it say here? You have not shut me up into the enemy's hands, but daily you have rescued me. God is said when a man goes after a harlot to deliver that man over to that harlot. It's not that the man goes somewhere. He is delivered over to bondage because God is displeased with him. We come to God in Christ and we are not delivered over to idolatry and harlotry and all of the rest. The outcome is that we are in a wide place of beautiful liberty serving God. We're free to serve God. We're no longer in slavery to sin and to death and to Satan. In verses 10 through 18, we have faith in the fray described, faith in the middle of the battle. It is here expressed because you see that what we just saw being brought into the wide place doesn't mean that we don't have a battle still to fight. It means that we're not in bondage to the things that are trying to captivate our soul, to take our soul captive. But we still are in the midst of a furious battle. And this talks about this section, verse 10 through 18, talks about the heat of that battle and how hot it is. God's redemption, of which we have just testified, sets us free so that now we're on God's side. We are His forever and He is ours. He is faithful and He will keep us. But, but that does not free us from hard times. The battle continues to rage as long as we're in this fallen world. The battle can be very intense. The pressure can be very great. It is in these times that our faith must be strong. It is in these times that our faith is tested. And it is these times that our faith emerges stronger than it was before. Our faith is developed and it grows in the heat of the battle as we have to turn to God. God uses the battle then not to destroy our faith. Sometimes it seems like He's destroying it because it can get very frail. But He does it in order to strengthen our faith. What we have here in verses 10 through 18 is the cry of faith in the heat of the battle. So let's walk through these verses as well. 31, 9 to 13. Here we confess that following the Lord brings many hardships. We have heavy sorrows in both body and soul in this world. We present these to our God, who is our keeper. We say, Lord, look at my desperate situation. 31.9, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is what we can call godly complaining. We do not want to fall away. This is that prayer our Lord told us to pray, a form of it, that uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I am in a mess right now. I am in the place of pressure and temptation and trial, and I am crying out to you. I am showing you my situation. 
And we saw before, God knows us in our adversities. Okay, this is godly complaining. This is so much the way of our Savior when He was here and bore our sins. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How great was His agony on on our account. And still today, as He sees us under affliction in this world, we are emboldened to cry out to God with Jesus who intercedes for us. The struggle is relentless and it wears us down. It saps our strength. And so we protest to our gracious Lord. The cry goes up, How long, O Lord? This is a godly prayer. We are rejected and regarded as a failure by our enemies. So we have this deep grief and sorrow. And then on top of that, we have the re- rejection of our enemies who see us as a failure. I am a reproach, verse 11. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. They see my sorry condition under affliction and temptation of this world, and they say, where is your God? I thought you said you trusted in God and that He would deliver you. Why doesn't He deliver you now? Is He not able to help you? Is He unwilling to help you? Have you offended him so that he won't help you? We know how Jesus bore this kind of reproach. He must have done some evil. See, he's a sinner. He's on the cross. Cursed is everyone on the tree. And so we bear when we follow him. We're not exempted from things that will make people look at us and say, you you trust God? All that has happened to you? They look to find fault with us even when we are being faithful that they might discourage us in serving God. They want to come between us and our God because it makes it unnerves them that we are trusting in the living God. They know that he is the living God and it unnerves them to see anyone trusting. him. that's why people are so hostile. Christendom described it very well of how they will attack even things that we're doing that are good in order to wear those things down. They, they make us, they, in other words, they bring reproach on us even when we're doing well. Here's what he said. If anyone strives after patience and humility, okay, so you're growing in patience and humility, he is a hypocrite. Oh, that person, he's a hypocrite. He's not really humble like that. If he allows himself in the pleasures of the world, he's a glutton. They said that about Jesus, didn't they? If he seeks justice, he is impatient. If he seeks it not, he is a fool. If he would be prudent, he is stingy. If he would make others happy, he is dissolute. If he gives himself up to prayer, he is vainglorious. Oh, look at him, so pompous, praying, praying, praying. What is he doing? Now, when that happens, what effect does that have? What pressure does that have upon our souls? Well, I won't pray so much. I won't, I, I won't be patient visibly like this because it, it, bring, it brings reproach. It makes people think I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I won't, what, what, we don't, we, we, we will we'll avoid growing. It's to, it's to tear us down. You're doing something good and they make fun of it so that you'll stop doing it, so that you'll be embarrassed to do what's good and right. This is a very real ploy to make you a reproach. This is part of the fray. This is part of the battle that we engage in. And then... We're told in this psalm, we are even rejected. We tell God we're even rejected by our friends when the battle rages. 
Nobody cares. Nobody stands with us. Nobody is ready to help us. Verse 11 says, and I am repulsive to my acquaintances. That's very strong languages. Those who see me outside flee from me. They don't want to be associated. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel for I hear the slander of many. They think I did something wrong. Why are you in such a condition under such affliction? If you please the Lord, how is it that you could be sick for so long? How is it that you could be destitute, impoverished, whatever might be that you're going through? If you belong to the Lord, if he delights in you, we may think of Job's friends. His very friends turned on him and said, Job, you've obviously done something very offensive to the Lord. And he had not. We think even more of Christ's friends who forsook him in the very time that he went to the cross. It's very difficult to suffer alone in the world with no companion in this world to understand. Even Job's wife said, curse God and die. In verse 13, we testify of how how this affects us and how they threaten us. Fear is on every side while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. When we're weak, then they're like vultures, buzzards, you know, gathering around. There's a strong animal that they would be terrified to attack. But it's weak. It's failing. It's about to die. And they all come in and start to, 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 to do their work. That's what they did to Christ when he was on the cross. That's what Satan does. Satan used Job's friends to do that to him. They're, they make plans to destroy, to attack, to undermine, to break down. They want to kill you. What do I mean by that? They want to kill your relationship with Christ. They want to destroy that so that you're dead in your sins. God has not promised us an easy life. This is an expression of the difficulties that we face in this section of the psalm. Nevertheless, our faith remains in God. Okay, in the middle of the fray, we trust in God. God is our go-to in such times of testing. This is marvelous. Look at verses 14 to 18. 14 to 15 first. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. We recognize that our entire life has been planned by him. We have entrusted our soul to him. Even whether we did or not, our life is planned by him. That's what it means when it says my times are in your hands. Times of sickness, they're from God's hands. They're planned. The times of slanders from other people, misunderstandings from other people, they're in God's hand too. Times of poverty, that's from God. Times of struggle and temptation, God has brought you into that. They're all from Him. Some might think it would be, make it worse to know that God has sent it. Why would He do that to you? But you see, we who trust in God, it makes it much better to know that God has sent it. Because we know that He has divine purpose that He uses in our affliction. We know that He is wise and good and powerful. And that He has our best interests in mind. None of this is random. It is all planned and designed by a wise and faithful creator and redeemer for His purposes. So we say, but as for me, I trust in you. 
That's what we do in the middle of the fray. And so these times of hardships, in the middle of them, we cry out to Him for deliverance. Verse 15, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me, who pursue me, who come after me. We know where our deliverance will come from and we know that our deliverance will come. Keep in mind that the very thing our enemies want to destroy again is our faith, our walk with God. They want to draw us back in the world's rebellion from which we have been rescued and delivered by Christ. They want us to turn against God and to embrace their rhetoric of distrust. But faith overcomes. We're drawn closer to God in the battle. We learn to trust Him more than we ever did before. Instead of pushing Him away, we're brought into more communion with Him in the midst of the fray. Now, sometimes you may struggle in the midst of the fray, but the overall effect in the end is that you're brought into greater communion with Him. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. I'm attracted to my God in the midst of that battle. This is a prayer for God to restore His visible favor to us, to manifest His favor for even where others can see it, to vindicate us, to show that He is pleased with us after all. Think about Daniel's friends that were put in the fiery furnace. Okay, when God's face shone upon them, first of all, they, they had communion with Him when they were in the furnace, personally. But when, his, when He delivered them, then everyone saw that God's favor was toward them. Many times you're in a situation in the middle of the battle, no one else can see God's favor upon you. They, they see the opposite. And that's what they tempt you with. Think of Jesus resurrected. He came out of the grave. Think about Job after God delivered him from all of his troubles and rebuked his friends. Job who had been falsely accused. Again, we ask God to make us glad that we have relied on him so that in the end we say, this was the right decision. <laughs> that's, that's putting it very, in almost a superficial way, but this was the right decision. We're not ashamed. Look at verse 17 and 18. It's, it's repeated. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Those who have chosen idols, let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things. Don't let them keep on propagating these errors. Put them in the grave. Put their lips in the grave that say trust in other things, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. That, that we can do it. That we have the resources, they say, instead of looking to God. So in the third section starting with verse 19 to the end of the psalm, we speak confidently of God's goodness and grace. Okay, so we've seen in the fray that faith keeps on looking to Him and trusting in Him. And now in this third section, we speak confidently of God's goodness and grace. This confidence is especially strong in those who have gone through a lot of suffering. For them to come out of that suffering, trusting God even more than they did before, shows that they are kept by the power of God. He's the one that preserved them. It shows that God has preserved them in the way that is most powerful and uh, that, that is that more powerful than if he had simply stopped the trouble. You ask God to preserve you and you say, he, he must take away this trouble from me. And he doesn't take it away. It's more powerful preservation if he makes you strong enough to bear that trouble 
rather than taking away. That's that's what I'm saying. Instead of stopping it, he let the enemies come against us with full force and with full rage and through it all strengthened us so that we did not collapse, but we continued to trust in him. This is what we see in Hebrews as we look at the faith of those that we're called to admire. And as we look at the faith of our Lord Jesus himself, who went to the cross, we will see how men like Abraham and Moses were made stronger in their faith because they were tested and afflicted. Not because they were brought away from testing, but put right into the midst of it. If everything had gone smoothly for them, they would have not learned to trust in God. Let's think about Let's think about Noah. What a marvelous thing that Noah and his family were preserved. The whole world, Noah called everyone to come on the ark. He preached. And only Noah and his family went on the ark. One family in the world that was trusting in God and believing what he said. One family. And God preserved him. That is a marvelous preservation. That's a greater miracle than if God had surrounded Noah with a whole bunch of people that were trusting in him. It would have been much more encouraging that way. But instead, what, what amazing faith. Where did that faith come from? It's a gift of God. You come away and admire God when you see Noah over, those hundred, over a century building that ark and continuing to believe what God has said when all the world ridiculed him. You could say similar things about Moses, about Abraham, about all the men of faith. We're going to be looking at those as we study in Hebrews. Let's again go to our text here. 31, 19 through 20 beautifully expresses this future aspect of our blessing. It expresses the fact that our greatest reward is yet to come. Don't look for the reward here and now. Oh, how great is your goodness, it says. Look at the language. Which you have laid up for those who fear you. Jesus tells us, lay up treasure in heaven, right? It's future. Lay it up. It's laid up for you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Now, whether that's talking about in the, in the presence of the sons of men when he displays our, the, our, our acceptance, or whether it's talking about it here and now that we trust him in the presence of, of people that are opposing us and so on. Great goodness, though, is laid up and prepared. What a happy thought that is. There is a great blessing that God has prepared for you. Jesus said that in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place. for you. There's a prepared blessing for you. And the best of it is described right here. What is the best of that that's prepared for to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, to see his glory? The excellence of Him, the delightfulness of, of seeing our God and knowing Him, seeing His beauty that will draw out our admiration endlessly so that it's never exhausted to see the glory and the greatness of our God and all that He is. We'll have praise beyond imagination. Anyone who comes to God looking for immediate blessing in this world will not stick long with the true God. There are some pretty excellent immediate blessings, aren't there? I mean, there are. There's hope. There's a measure of communion with God here and now. There's enlightenment. There's growth in love and grace. There's a new appreciation for all the things that we used to take for granted, that they come from God. 
But these immediate blessings are flat and unimpressive if they are not rooted in the assurance that we have future reward. If this is all there is, then it is not something that will sustain you. Like Paul, the men who have true faith, and especially those who attain the greatest heights in their faith, recognize that if only in this life we have hope, we're to be most pitied. This is not it. This is not the end. This is not all there is. But we do have an important expectation in this life. There is something that you should rely on, count on, depend upon, and totally expect in this life. And what is that? Not that we will face no battles, but that the Lord will keep you in the battle. That we who have come to Him are kept by His power and by His grace. This keeping that He does is beautifully explained in verse 20. Look at this language. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly in the pavilion from the strife of tongues. All this slander, all this hostility, all this pressure coming against you. And you're kept in your relationship with God in the pavilion of God, in the secret place, in the God is your refuge. God himself is our refuge, right? That's where we come for our refuge. It's a keeping that is best known to the ones who are being kept. It's in the secret place of God's presence, the communion that we have with God through Jesus Christ that we have seen described, opened up for us by Christ in Hebrews. The one who is a forerunner that went into the presence of God and who established a tabernacle, not made with hands, made with people, where God dwells. That our Lord Jesus Christ has opened the way of God, and that He has given us His Spirit, and made us living stones, who are the dwelling place of God. We are the sanctuary of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us, and He strengthens us, and He upholds us when the battle heats up. We have personal communion in His grace. The world does not understand why we would go on trusting God when we don't seem to be getting anything tangible in this world because that's all they understand. They look at the things that are seen and not at the things that are not seen. It is the communion with our God in faith. He kisses us with the kisses of His lips and He assures us of His love and promise. He works in us. He causes our love and trust to grow to a greater and greater maturity. The world does not appreciate this transformation, but it gives great joy and confidence to us of this grand thing, God's great goodness. His his excellence is what we're going to see. So verse 21, 22, we say, Blessed be the Lord, for He has shown me His marvelous kindness in a strong city. We bless Him for keeping us in the secret place. That's where His kindness is is expressed in this world. In Himself is our mighty fortress, is our strong city, as it says here. God is our refuge and our strength. He is that place of refuge, as we said in verse 3. How kind He has been to preserve us. How powerful His preservation has been that keeps us in a hostile world. It is a marvelous kindness that only those who know the Lord know. And that only matters, it only matters to those who have faith. 
We bless him for his powerful hand of deliverance that rescues us when we cry out to him as those who would otherwise sink into rebellion and despair. Verse 22, for I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes in the midst of the fray. It can seem like that God is not keeping us at times, but then at last he comes through the rest of verse 22. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Whenever that happens, whenever we get to that weak point and we say, where is God? And then he comes through for us again. It makes our faith stronger each time than it was before. And so our Lord leads us and our Lord Jesus leads us here in this psalm. As he lead, he's the leader of this psalm in calling each other to love the Lord our God. And to place our confidence in him as the one who daily preserves us in the battle. He says to us, and we with him say to each other, verse 23, Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. Love him, people. Love this God that we're talking about. For the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Christian, your God is good and your hope is sure. He is good beyond all measure. He is the one who preserves us until the day that Christ is manifested and we are manifested before the world. He will strengthen your heart until that day. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trust in him in the midst of the fray. Please stand. Oh, Lord God, we call upon your name as those who are in a hostile world that is trying to pull us away from you. We know, Lord, that you have put us here for a reason and that it is our purpose here at this time to follow you in the midst of all the pressure and all that is, comes against us and to grow and cultivate our relationship with you to be strengthened more and more as we go on in this world. We thank you, Lord, that the, all of the temptations and pressures are making us stronger and deepening our relationship with you through Jesus Christ and by your grace. We know, Lord, that in the middle of the battle, sometimes we feel that our faith is being destroyed. But if we are yours, O oh Lord, you come through and you answer us. And in the end, we're stronger than we were before. I pray, Lord, that we would not be surprised when the battle rages, that we would not suppose that something strange has happened, that we would not listen to the slanders of those who would tell us that you are not with us, that you are far away. But, Father, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered these things. We would enter into the fellowship of his sufferings and we would know what it is to sing this psalm and others like it with our Lord Jesus Christ to pray this prayer and other prayers like it with our Lord Jesus Christ in the fray. We thank you that he leads us and guides us. And Father, we thank you that he does stand with us, that he comes to us in a special way in the midst of the affliction, that he has known us in the time of our adversity. And we pray, Lord, that, that with this assurance that we would face all that you have called us to face and that we would not be cowardly, that we would not turn away, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that our labor 
is not in vain. Lord, thank you so much for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. People of God, receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.